All right, if you take your Bibles with me this morning, and uh, let's look at the book of Philippians, uh, Philippians chapter 1, if you would uh, join me there as we look at God's Word, and as we uh, do so, let's uh, pray this morning. Father, what a privilege uh, to be together this morning. We we're thankful, Lord, in spite of uh, difficulties with uh, some of the things with COVID, uh, weather-related uh, things that are going on, uh, perhaps uh, many other things on our hearts and minds, uh, Lord, that would even occupy us away from this building. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided an opportunity for us to be together. Lord, our, our goal is ultimately that we might worship the Lord Jesus Christ. May we exalt his name and lift him up uh, for uh, the glory of uh, the Father. And we just uh, thank you again. Thank you for the word this morning. I pray in some respects, Lord, that you would move me out of the way that we might truly hear from the Spirit of God uh, those things that you would desire us to hear, that we might be uh, those who would better serve you in these days ahead. Perhaps even uh, someone here today might even come to know Christ as their Savior as a result of being in the Word and seeing the truth. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, if your Bibles are open to Philippians uh, chapter 1, I want to read verses 27 through 30. Just to give you the context of where we're going this morning, Philippians chapter 1, uh, 27 through 30, the Apostle Paul writing, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. I don't think it should surprise any of us these days that we are, we are living in interesting times. Uh, one can almost read the book of 2 Timothy, the third chapter, and walk away understanding with great fervor, as the Apostle Paul wrote, just how, uh, how much that matches even where we are today, observing the landscape of our society, because it was there that the Apostle Paul wrote, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. There's, there's an interesting characteristic. Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power, and then three powerful words of the Apostle Paul, avoid such people. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I thought to myself, that's interesting, because the question is, how do you avoid the very people that you have to live in society with, that are described by these very characteristics? They exhibit selfishness, we see that in our culture, arrogance, broken relationships, hateful attitudes, and unrestrained behavior. That marks our culture today. 
Avoiding them, I think, comes simply by not listening to them and not participating in what they're doing. It calls us as believers to a high standard of living according to God's word. And so we don't participate. But what it's going to mean is that you and I are going to have to take a stand for the faith. It means we're going to have to have our hearts and our minds to be more Christ-like in the culture that Paul described in his culture. Kind of reminds me of a Peanuts cartoon in which loosely demanded that Linus, his, her little brother, change the TV channels, threatening him with her fist if he didn't. What he, he responds, well, what makes you think you can walk right in here and just take over? Well, Lucy says, these five fingers. She says, individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together, they uh, form a single unit, and they are nothing uh, but something to be held firmly. At that point, little Linus says, what channel do you want? Turning away, he looks at his fingers and says, why can't you guys get organized like that? And I, and I often think to myself, when facing the culture of today in, in our society, and, and as we come together as the church, I often fear too often that the church is much like Linus's fingers. They just can't quite get it organized into one strong, powerful unit that would be a weapon of force against all odds in our society, working and in some respects locking arms together. There, there seems to be some relevant questions as we approach Paul's text here and in this section of Philippians. One is, in what areas do we hold the line as believers and lock arms together with fellow believers? The second question would be, how do we encourage one another to maintain a spirit of working together? The last one's an interesting question I ask myself, and that is, how, how do we actually maintain an attitude of unity in a culture that is determined to undermine the Christian faith. As a, as a body of Christ, our goal is to pray for our culture and to maintain an identity as representatives of Christ and God's kingdom as we face life together. I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I'm not a prophet. I've often said I'm not the son of a prophet or a grandson of a prophet, but I can read the writing on the wall as I look at our culture and our society today, and I, and I can honestly say to you, we are not headed toward utopia. We are headed down a spiraling staircase of far worse than what we have seen today. The question is for us as Christians, how are we going to lock arms together? And I believe Paul gives us at least four ways that we can do that here in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through verse 30. The first way is by submitting ourselves together to godly standards. In other words, we have to be able to lock arms together and cling to something that... that gives us something in our ever-shifting culture of society that has no standards, almost has no absolutes anymore. We have to come back to something, and we find it here in God's Word. So the Apostle Paul again says in verse 27, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And, and as, he, as he does that, there's a sense in which there's a shift uh, from the verse, first uh, 26 verses. Matter of fact, there are those who believe that uh, this verse actually in verse 27 
is very pivotal. It, it's of primary importance. Uh, as one guy said, it's a, it's a hinge to everything he's going to say in the rest of the book. Right here in verse 27. And, and there's a number of things that Paul wants to emphasize to, to the believers and to us as we listen to it today. And part of that is going to be the, the importance of the, the priority that Paul says. And that's why he uses one little word as he kind of moves from verse 26 into verse 27. He uses the word only. Merely is kind of the idea or, or solely, uh, exclusively, Paul is saying. There's an importance here. Uh, for instance, this same word is used, if you remember the story in the Gospels in Matthew's account, uh, of the woman who for 12 years had the, that physical problem that she had, and remember she went to the doctors and the doctors couldn't do anything for her, and she thought, well, there's one person that can take care of my problem, it's Jesus. Uh, he'd been running all over, you know, healing uh, various diseases, so she thought, you remember the, the, the Bible story where it says, she said, if I only can touch his garment, I will made it. If, if I can just solely get close enough to grab out and, and, and touch his hymn, I will be healed. That's the same word Paul uses here. It's a sense of urgency. She was pushing herself. It, it, was, it was extremely important for her to get there in that sense. I'll be made well. So it drove her and pushed her. 1 Corinthians 7.39 uses that word too when Paul talks about the death of a husband and uh, the possibility of remarriage of the woman. And, and he says, she is free to be married or remarried to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying uh, in many respects, uh, she has one, one sole obligation if she's going to remarry, it needs to be a believer. That's his point. It makes a, a sense in which Paul is saying, as he moves from verse 26, there's something important that he's going to say now. And, and, it, and it drives him in that respect. And, and it has to do with, in, in, in all respects, with behavior, with the conduct of the church, with the conduct of believers. That's why he goes on and uses that word, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In other words, uh, there, is a, there is a behavior, there's a way that Christians live that is, is to be different than society around us. Uh, I think it was Peter that actually coined the term, we're aliens, we're strangers. Uh, we ought to be different, and that's what Paul is saying here. There, there's, a, there's a way of living, a way that we conduct ourselves that's extremely important as believers. Uh, it's really interesting where he says, let your, really one Greek word, it's in the present imperative, which means something that he's not suggesting. Uh, in other words, when we come to this, conduct yourselves in a manner, it's, uh, you are absolutely obligated to do that if you're going to follow Christ. And so everything he says from this point on is, is his command to us and how we ought to live. And so he, he begins to mark out the identity. We're going to see in a moment that our identity really is that while we're on this earth, we're not part of this earth. Uh, our, our, uh, our destiny is really in the glories. It's in, it's in heaven itself. We, we are representatives of something far different than just here uh, on earth. And so Paul talks about this conduct. It's, it's an interesting word, conduct. It's a political term. Interestingly enough, it comes from the Greek politio, from which we get our word politics, our political meaning uh, in many respects, 
took on the term citizenship. In other words, Paul is saying, I want you to only live your life as a citizen. Now, he's going to move it beyond just a citizen of the earth to another citizenship he wants to remind him of. As a matter of fact, if you were to read a little later on in Philippians 3, you would see that the Apostle Paul talks about our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lonely body. We're, we're, we're not from here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're on loan on earth in that respect. So we conduct ourselves, we live in such a way that we are, yes, good citizens upon the earth, but far greater than that is we're representatives of citizens of heaven. That's how we really ought to live. Now, just a couple things that might help us to understand. Uh, to live as a good citizen meant you conducted yourself uh, according to the laws and the customs. You, you lived a life that was uh, kind of lived by a certain rule of behavior. It's very interesting. If you were, if you were a Roman citizen, you were expected to live as a Roman citizen would live. It was very, very important. Now, Philippi was a miniature Rome. Uh, it was a colony like many of the Roman colonies that were the epitome of the larger city of Rome. In other words, Philippi, in some respects, was to live, their citizens were to live just like they were a Roman citizen in Rome. It was extremely important for them. Uh, it was, it was a great place of commerce, trade, religion, politics. Uh, Philippi was considered a, a colony set apart that represented Rome itself. So citizenship often involves how we live. It involves community. It involves being a member of society, being loyal and, and duty-bound to the, to the place that you're at. Uh, it, in, it involves being um, having a, a right behavior might be the way to put it. Uh, and if you weren't living by a right behavior as a Roman citizen, uh, they got a hold of you very quickly. Because they, as, as bad as Rome was, one of the things Rome wanted was people to act like Romans. That was just uh, essential. And uh, so citizenship brings about relationship. One of the things I think is interesting about it is that it brings also a reputation and a representation. And so when Paul goes on later to write about we're citizens of heaven, what is he saying? He's saying that you are representatives, you have a reputation to behold of Christ and God himself while you're upon this earth. I think it brings us up uh, short many times when we look at people and say, say I'm a Christian and yet they act like the devil. Wait a minute, there's a problem here. I think it was Napoleon at one time that you know, some guy was acting up, and he brought him before him, and he asked him his name and stuff, and he said, you better change your name because uh, you're reflecting me, and you're not acting like you're supposed to. There's a sense in which that's what we're learning here uh, in that respect. So it's interesting that when somebody takes the oath of a citizen of the United States, what they're indeed doing is they are saying, I will act like a United States citizen should act. Now, in some respects, we wonder what that's supposed to be anymore in our culture, but the reality is there's a standard that they're to, to live by when they become a citizen. And so when you go on, the Apostle Paul says, only conduct yourselves, and he tells us how to do that. He gives us a quality or standard of living. He says, um, in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. What's the standard? The gospel, right here. We want to look from Genesis to Revelation. This is how we as Christians live. This is our stand. It's not, it's not the philosophies of the world today. Uh, it's not even my opinion as to how I should live. That's the standard right there. 
And that is what Paul says according to the, to the gospel. See, transformed lives are manifested in how we conduct ourselves as believers according to the word of God. And, and what I think is interesting as you go on, the apostle Paul says, so that whether I come and I see you or remain absent, I will hear something. Yeah, Paul knew that the, the standard of living should be done whether he was there to hold a, a rod over them or not. In, in other words, one of, the, one of the privileges, and I think one of the things that we expect, hopefully will happen, is when we raise our children by certain standards and they go out into public without us, what are we hoping? That they'll continue to live by those same standards. You know, we don't have to walk around with them, you know, all the time while they're teenagers and in college and then as they become young adults, I'm going to hang with you 24 hours because I want to make sure. Paul is saying, whether you, whether I'm there or not, I'm hoping your standard of living will match up to the manner of the gospel. I want you living according to the gospel. And standards or rules are to be maintained whether that leader is right there or parent is right there or not. And the gospel, if it doesn't, it becomes marred and people begin to wonder, you know, what is this thing called the gospel because I'm not seeing any clarity in how it's lived out. So that's why Peter says in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Ephesians 4.1 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you've been called. We've been called as Christians, uh, giving our lives to Christ, and Paul says, I want you to walk according to that manner of living. And so one of the first ways we lock our arms according to the Apostle Paul, and we need to submit, is that working together as one another in submission to the things of the standards of the word of God. There's a second way we lock arms together, and we also find it in part of verse 27, and that's by standing together with a unified spirit. Notice what Paul goes on to say. Your, your conduct's important. How you behave yourself's important as a believer. And then he goes on to say, with, or, or, I, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. It's interesting that Paul now moves from the political world to a military world. And one of the things you're going to find as we work through this, there are actually four types of areas that Paul grabs from his culture. First, the political, now the military. It's, it's a word describing the Roman, Roman army as he uses this, uh, this subject uh, here, uh, standing firm, like a soldier would stand Firm. The idea is that as a group together, they would stand and they would keep standing as one spirit. I think it's really, um, really uh, encouraging when you hear of churches that are standing together in one spirit, just like a soldier would. Uh, toward the end of the book, the Apostle Paul notes how much he loves these folks and he just loves to be with them for they are, the Bible says, my joy and crown of ministry. And then he encourages them with these words, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. Why did they have to stand firm kind of in that military fashion? Because Paul knew the things that would face them as a church. And folks, we have things that are going to be facing us that are facing us right now as a church that we need to stand firm. 
Because, folks, if we don't stand firm together, we're going to divide, and there's going to be some issues that come with that. Now, an illustration of that, I think, would be from President Trump's Memorial Day service back in May of 2018. And I quote, he says, For more than 80 years, the sentinels of the old guard have kept watch over the tomb of the unknown soldier. Serving in this elite unit is among the most prestigious honors in the United States military. While the rest of us sleep, while we go about our lives through every moment, through every day, through freezing cold, scorching heat, and raging storms, they stand watch. The term that the Apostle Paul is using here is that we would stand fast, stand firm, hold our ground in the midst of anything else that would come against us. On the other hand, in recent years, we have seen a young sergeant in the Army in the news for some time. He left his post. He was captured. Men were earned or injured looking for him. At his trial, he was charged with desertion, fined $1,000 for a month for 10 months, and he got a dishonorable discharge from the Army. Why? Because he did not stand his post. And as Christians, Paul is saying, stand your post. Stand together. Not just individually go out and do and stand. We're together, he says, as a group, we stand our post. I think there's an understanding here of the seriousness of what Paul is saying. There's a seriousness of duty in that respect. And so Paul says that there, there's going to be an importance here that you cannot let your defenses down. Uh, you can't go AWOL and, and do your own thing. And there's a relentless determination to be alert and aware. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith. You know the things that are coming against the church. Are you aware of what's happening in the culture today? Are you aware of the things that they're saying about the church and those who stand for the faith? We have to be aware of what's going on. We have to understand uh, this, this is a serious thing, being Christians. Uh, I think we're going to be called to a point where we can realize now this is not a game. You know, this is not a party that we're a part of. We're going to be called to make decisions. We're going to be called to take a stand. And are we going to stand as a church against the evils that are coming against the church? And, folks, they will be coming. I think there's an understanding that you know, when you're standing firm, you're, you're not going to find that strength in yourself. You have to find it in somewhere else, and that's going to be in God's power. That's the whole idea of standing firm. And it's really interesting to me that this must have been a favorite term of the Apostle Paul because he used it so frequently in the New Testament. And, and standing firm assumes that there's something solid that you're standing on because, after all, it's very difficult to stand firm in quicksand. It's very difficult to stand solid in a muddy swamp. It's very difficult to stand firm if you're hanging on from a building somewhere. The solid foundation upon which we stand is none other than Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that. We have songs that remind us of that, you know, that we were standing upon him and his promises to us. And so we get strength from that. Ephesians 3.16 says that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with the power of that through the spirit in the inner man. There's a sense in which as we rely upon him and his power, we will find ways that we can stand in ways that we never thought we could. There is a supernatural power available to us. And those of us who have had to tap into that at times can stand back and say, I don't know how that happened. 
because I, in and of myself, I never would have been able to do that. Where the weak become strong and we're able to stand according to his might. You all know probably Ephesians chapter 6 and the, the armor of God passage. Before Paul ever describes the armor, he says these words, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then he goes on to say, put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. Philippians 4.1, a little later on in this book, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, might join crown. Remember I said, in this way, stand firm. 2 Thessalonians, he says, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or the letter from us. And there's really an understanding that the Apostle Paul pulls together here in this way of standing firm. He says, with one spirit. There's one spirit, one understanding of what that is by way of cooperating with one another. I think if you want a really good indication of what that's like, read Philippians chapter 2. Just a little later, he goes on to describe what that looks like. Being of the same mind, being of the same purpose, going in the same direction. There's a sense in which... We, we shed our own various ideas and persons and uh, ideas of what we want to do, and we come together as a group, as one spirit together. Paul was really intent. I, I, I recognize that there's a sense in which some believe that really the key and theme throughout the whole book of Philippians is joy. And, and certainly Paul talks about that, and he talks about rejoicing and, and all that goes in the Lord with that. Very important subject. But I want to submit to you today, I think in my own personal opinion, the, the major theme is unity. The major theme is working together. The major theme is one-mindedness one by the church. Um, and, and I think we need that today. There's a cooperation that goes on in that respect. And so uh, chapter 2 really talks more about that in that respect. So we lock arms together, not, not only uh, in that sense of uh, understanding uh, the submission we need to have with one another as we work together, but there's a sense in also we stand together by understanding uh, the importance of this whole standing firm uh, in that respect. Third, we talk about, Paul talks about locking arms together and holding the line in that respect by striving together for the truth uh, of the gospel in verse 27 into verse 28. Again, where he, he begins to say, uh, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And almost when you first read it, it says, what's the difference between that and what he just said? Uh, there's a sense in which it's totally different because he's talking about the political world, you remember? And then he talks about the military world. Now he brings us into another world. It's the athletic world. Interesting thought. Paul moves from the military to the athletic world. Now, uh, if you're uh, unlike me, I, I like athletics. You know, I, I like to play uh, baseball, I, I love to play sports, I, I like to run, uh, those kind of things. Um, I, I like uh, athletics. And so I kind of understand what Paul is saying here, especially when it comes to team sports. Uh, the Greek term here, son athleto, means to struggle along with someone. Uh, it's not, a, it's not an, a, a, an athlete that's doing uh, his own separate sport. This is a sport of working together. And I bet probably the only way we could bring it into our culture today might be something like football. Uh, you don't win football games doing your own thing. Uh, you, might, you might be able to do that in basketball, get away with the hot shot that, that you know, is making you know, 40, 50 points, and he wins the game for everybody. But you don't do that in football. You know, uh, the quarterback may look good, but the only reason he looks good is because somebody else on the team is helping him look good. So Paul is using a term here that means 
as we come together as Christians, we, we, we struggle together. There, there's a striving together uh, in this life. And it's a concept that we, we, we're doing this and we're going to keep doing it. And I think the key to any athletic competition, if you're going to be successful, is twofold. There's discipline and there's living by the rules. One author notes this regarding discipline in this passage. In the spiritual realm, no Christian will be spiritually successful without discipline. If an athlete expects to excel, he or she carefully supervises such things as diet, sleep, exercise. He goes on to note similarly the believers to follow the training rules of God's word. He or she is not engaged in a battle with half-hearted, out-of-shape effort. His or her mind must be disciplined according to the standards of God's revealed truth. So the, the question is, we have this thing called spiritual disciplines, time in the word, memorizing, meditating, reading, uh, evangelism, and talking about the Lord with others. Discipline, discipline, discipline. That, that's a tough word. Uh, and I've learned over the years, uh, there are just certain things that, uh, I don't like diets. You know, I, I'll be honest with you, I just don't like diets. I, I've learned, though, uh, having a wife that is disciplined helps me to be disciplined. And uh, I, I know that there's certain things that, you know, I probably shouldn't be eating for certain reasons, and uh, it just helps in that respect. But uh, we need to discipline ourselves, the Bible says, toward the purpose of godliness. That's our striving toward godliness. And then someone once said, athletes live by rules. And, and then they brought it into the Christian realm, and they said, well, why should we have rules? I mean, after all, shouldn't we be allowed to do whatever we want? I remember somebody saying, don't rules just keep us from ex really expressing our true inner self? Our culture says it infringes on our rights for somebody to tell me how I need to act or behave. Uh, aren't rules just another form of manipulating other people to do what you want them to do? Why can't I just run wherever I want as an athlete, whenever I want? And can't we just all then stand on the podium together and sing Kumbaya? Well, you can't do that as an athlete. Not if you're doing a team sports. You work together. And that's Paul's thought here is that not only are we conducting ourselves in the way that would be like a soldier who stands his post and we're working together on that, but now we're striving together in the culture upon which we live. We're striving together as, as one mind. And notice he gives you what that looks like for the faith of the gospel, for the truth. And so anytime that we're beginning to hear things that go against the truth right here, the gospel, the faith of this gospel, the standard of God's word, we're going to be those who are going to be the soldiers and the athletes who will stand up for what we need to stand up for. And that's going to be reflected in a number of ways in our prayer life, in our tenacity of mind that pushes us forward. It's going to be found in the unity that we have that can't be diminished. And Paul notes that those who are striving together do so with one mind, one heart, a unity of heart and soul and purpose. There's just something about being a teammate and working together. I, I love what Stephen Davey, pastor of Colonial Baptist Church in North Carolina, notes. He, he writes a, a, a number of things that characterize a good teammate. And I think this can be brought into the Christian world, too. He says, first of all, a good teammate offers ongoing encouragement. Are, are we being encouragement to other people, other believers? A good teammate is willing to cheer from the bench. In other words, I might not be in the actual game or out front where some of the guys are, but I'm willing to be a cheerleader uh, in that sense. A good teammate understands 
that the us is more important than the word me. I often used to tell some people, it's not about you. It's about the church. It's about all of us working together. A good teammate recognizes that every position on the team is critical. You know, the, the water boy is just as important as a quarterback. That's the whole point. A good teammate sacrifices his comfort for the advancement of the team, and a good teammate is willing to accept the assignment of his coach. What is it that God is expecting out of me? Am I carrying out that part that he would use for me as, as I have my gifts and abilities? But we're striving for the faith of the gospel, the truth. And we're living, as I said earlier, in a culture that uh, almost anything but the truth uh, is rampant in our society today. And I think there's going to be some there's going to be some grinding in these days ahead for us who stand for the truth and as a church collectively working and standing against all that's coming against the church in these days. That's why Paul said, uh, the faith of the gospel changes life. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're trusting, that the faith of the gospel penetrates the souls and the hearts of people. And Paul goes on to say, never alarmed by your opponents, because one of the things that scares to death the church today is all that we're seeing that's coming against the word of God and the church in Jesus Christ today. Paul says, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of that. It's an interesting word he uses. It really had to do with a horse that was being startled. Don't be startled. Don't be startled by the world. Some call it being skittish, like a horse would. You know, just automatically. No, uh, we're not doing that. I, I love what John MacArthur said in his book, The Truth War. If the church cannot be fiercely proclaimed, uh, if the truth cannot be fiercely proclaimed in the church, what place is there for the truth at all? How can we build a generation of discerning Christians if we are terror struck at the thought that non Christians might not like hearing the unvarnished truth? Isn't that an interesting statement? that we're living in a day and age where you and I will give them the truth of what God's word says, we'll give them the truth of how we are to behave, how we are to live, and we're, we're a little bit nervous that, that, the worst, that, the church, that the world might just get a little bit upset with that. No, don't be scared at that, is what he's saying. And so we lock arms together by striving together as one unit. But then lastly, we come to probably one that's, that probably scares us the most. Uh, and that's by suffering graciously together. I think it's interesting that Paul gets through all of these points that he's saying here, and then he gets to verse 29, and it's as though, let's jump into chapter 2, verse 1. Let's skip 29 and verse 30. Notice what he says, though. For to you, you believers, it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. I think that's very interesting because the Christian life is not just filled with blessings and good things, praise the Lord that it is, but there are going to be some struggles along the way. Not just physically, we will deal with that. Emotionally, we will deal with that. But I think it has to do with everything in the context that if you're going to be in this political world as a citizen of heaven and you're going to be standing firm as a as a soldier would, and you're going to be striving together like an athlete would, that the inevitable outcome of all of that is 
you're not only going to be those tested because you just believe in his name, but you're going to suffer for his name at some point. Now, here's an interesting thing. When Paul uses this word, granted for Christ's sake, I think he means there's an honor. There's a privilege that goes with it. I've been, I've been reading a little bit about Ignatius back in the second century, uh, dealing with Marcion and, and some of those that didn't believe that Jesus Christ actually came in the flesh and died in the flesh. There was a sense that Ignatius, his, his, almost kind of his motto was, I'm going to die a martyr. I want to die a martyr, and if you do anything that would keep me from dying in martyrdom for the sake of the gospel, I'm going, to run you, I'm going to run you away. He wanted to do whatever it would take to be like Christ. He wanted to model Christ. He wanted to, you know, he wanted to copy Christ's life in, in, in death, and he felt the way that he could do that was being a martyr by standing for the cause of Christ even at the point of death. And he said, if, if I really can't do that, it's almost like I, I'm, I'm wasting my time. He, he understood. He understood what Peter said, that uh, Christ suffered as an example in our place that we might follow in his steps. That meant that there may come that point, much like Ignatius, that I have to give something up. It may not be our life in our culture today, but who knows where things are going. And at this point, Christ, Paul is saying that it may have been granted to you. It may have been granted to us as Christians. It, it could be a privilege. And I don't know about you, but I've never thought about suffering as, as an honorable, privileged way of being a believer. But it's going to take a number of things. It's going to take a test of true character. Sometime read Romans 5, 1 through 5. Paul talks about character and suffering. Sometimes suffering builds character. It's going to take a test of faithful dependency. If you really want a good testimony of the Apostle Paul who's writing these very words, read 2 Corinthians 1. That is Paul's whole philosophy of suffering. Even to the point of death, Paul said. Even to the point of death. Why? So that we would learn one truth. That our trust and dependency needs to be in God, not ourselves. And I think that's what he's saying here. Not only for that we would believe in him, but there may come, there may come that point where even in the culture of the United States of America, we may have to suffer for him. And that would be something that would be granted because of Christ's sake. That would almost be a privilege and an honor to be able to do that. And then Paul ends by really talking about the experiences that he went through, the experiences he is still going through, and the experiences that these believers are going through. It's really interesting in verse 30. He says that you're experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now you're here to be in me. It's, it's not over. It's, it's not over. And they were experiencing that reality in that respect. Let me, let me kind of slow things down, wrap it up here a minute. But 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 says these words to us as Christians today. So... That no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. What does Peter, what does Paul mean? He means that as Christians, if we live according to the standards of the gospel, there is possibly coming that day when we will be persecuted for our faith. Peter, uh, chapter 4, Peter wrote this, Beloved, 
Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal or fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in as far as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Don't be surprised. Should it shock any of us that the world of sinners acts like sinners? No. Should it surprise us that they're not going to buy into the gospel that we stand for? Should it surprise us then that there may come that point where for Christ's sake it's been granted to us that we would be honored in such a way to stand and face whatever would come our direction. Alan Redpast, as I, I will close with this, pastor of Moody Church for seven years in the late 50s and early 60s, uh, wrote something in his book called Victorious Christian Living, and he said this, There is nothing, no circumstance, no trouble, no testing that can ever touch me until, first of all, it's gone past God and past Christ, right through to me. If it has come that far, it has come with great purpose, which I may not understand at the moment, but as I refuse to become panicky, as I lift my eyes to him and accept it as coming from the throne of God for some great purpose of blessing to my own heart, no sorrow will ever disturb me, no trial will ever disarm me, no circumstance will ever cause me to fret, for I shall rest in the joy of what my Lord is. That is the rest of victory. I think Redpath had it correctly that we understand that whatever comes our direction comes from the very throne room of God to our direction for some purpose, a greater purpose than maybe we even understand at the time. We are citizens together. We are soldiers together. We are athletes together. We are sufferers together for the cause of Christ. So I don't panic, as Redpath said, but I trust in him even more. So really the ultimate question is, are we like Lucy's fist, that we are together, we are joined together, we are forced to behold as a church, as we stand in our culture today, or are we just kind of separated doing our own thing in that respect? Do we recognize the importance of our heavenly citizenship as we represent Christ on earth? We have an important position as those who are believers today. Let's pray that we would lock arms together even more uh, as we face uh, what we have in these days ahead. Father, we thank you. We don't know how, any, uh, how, how long any of us have really upon this earth. Uh, we know that, Lord, we want to finish well this day. Uh, should you give us uh, the rest of the afternoon and the evening, we can only take one day at a time, one moment actually at a time. But, Lord, help us uh, as a church, as a church not only here at Lewis and Clark, but as we understand we're a representative of a church worldwide of fellow believers that are serving and trusting you. Uh, Lord, uh, forgive us in times where we have backed off, where we've been scared, where we have been uh, not as diligent uh, to know that uh, we are your soldiers. We are uh, those who need to stand more together uh, and strive together. Uh, Lord, help us to, to uh, move ourselves out of the way. If there have been times of selfishness and times where it's been about me, Lord, just help us to understand it's really about a greater work that you're doing. And I'd also pray, Lord, uh, it's, it's a tough thing to talk about suffering. It, 
to even think about that possibility that there may be ways that we, uh, we could go through persecution or ridicule or whatever it might be to stand for the cause of Christ. Help us to be bold, uh, to be firm, uh, to be sensitive and, uh, and be an encouragement to one another. Uh, come alongside one another, uh, Lord, that we would be the strength uh, in our times of weaknesses and that you would be our strength. Help us to put on that armor of God uh, day by day as we, as we serve you. We depend upon your strength and your power. And we just thank you. Thank you for wisdom and discernment. May you guide and direct us throughout this day. For Jesus' sake, amen.